morning. something, a valuable lesson or an idea or some sort of conviction or um, something you hold valuable, but they didn't teach you in a podcast or a lecture or a textbook or an article or a post or text or images. They taught you this value with their life. So I need to think, think of someone like that for you, who taught you something with their life. And I'm going to fasten this little microphone. <laughs> there we go. I feel like this side of the area might be best. Um, just hold that thought in your mind. You don't have to share it with anybody. I'm not going to make you talk. <laughs> um, is there a clicker, or do you want me to? Thank you. It's great. Twenty, almost twenty years ago, when I was in college, I had a roommate named Darcy, very good friend of mine. Um, Darcy taught me a lot. <laughs> I had a lot to learn as a college student, um, but she taught me a word that I'd never heard before, and that is the word downshifting. Um, Darcy was an English major and she got involved with a lot of social justice work and she, she told me about this word and um, what it meant in a context that made sense to me in this society. Um, basically downshifting is when somebody or a group of people of a higher position um, maybe a position of power or a social status or wealth or resources, education, um, fame. Somebody up here in society takes a downshift to associate with people who are lower on the ladder of our society. Um, she taught me what this word meant, and I thought, wow, like, that's kind of cool. Um, does anyone actually do that? And Oh, there's an arrow. In case you forget what, what weighs down. Um, I asked her, does anyone do this? My friend Darcy taught me about this word, and I thought, I asked her, does anyone do this? Because that sounds like a good idea, but has this been done before? And she said, she said very humbly, um, my parents, my family, my immediate family actually did this as a vocation. And I knew her family very well, and it all made sense to me. They, um, they, as a family, decided to spend many, 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 many years while the girls were young and as they grew into high school ages and into college to care for adults with Down syndrome who had no other caregiver or um, whose families did not want to do the caregiving for their adult life. So they had, at any given time, four to five um, adults in their home, and um, this is one of them. His name is Thor. Thor was our favorite character that um, was a part of their family. Darcy would tell stories about Thor all the time. Um, 
Thor's life was the best, the best life I can imagine Thor having in their family. And the point of this conversation about downshifting was that, um, not that these people are not as valuable as, as the ones caregiving, the, the point is that our society doesn't value them as much. And, and for this conversation, um, the context in which you're having the conversation, downshifting to take a lower paycheck or to take a lower, um, a not as comfortable home life or to take a step towards people who aren't valued as much um, in a downshifting sort of way, it made sense to me at that moment when we were having this conversation in college. Um, downshifting is all about our associations. Um, from our birth, we are conditioned to climb a ladder. And this ladder in America is success and exceptionalism. We're, we're conditioned to climb this ladder. And then we get to mark and protect what we have. Um, and associations develop out of that, out of how we're conditioned to be. Um, there's homeowners associations, there's professional sports clubs, there's social clubs, um, business associations, all that. Um, and I thought of, I tried to think of a modern day like <laughs> example of something that would be very extreme using this word. And what came to my mind would be like, if someone had a membership at the California Club in Los Angeles and they, they like, they gave up their membership to the California Club and they went and joined the Monroe Elementary School unicycle team. Like that would be an extreme downshift because <laughs> their association shifts downward in society. Um, so Darcy taught me a lot, not only like giving me this new word or this new idea, but she taught me it with her life and with the life of her family. Um, and Thor was a big part of that, that for, for her family and for me. Um, I'm going to put Britney Spears' headset right there. So whoever's next is waiting. Um, and I have read almost every single Henry Nouwen book. And what I, Henry Nouwen's taught us a lot in, in his writings of what he did in the L'Arche communities very, very similar to the O'Brien family and how they, they cared for adults with disabilities. Um, this was personal to me. It wasn't a book. So it, it, the, the, the impact of what it taught me was greater. Um, now, this is a very human example of downshifting. And it is a reminder as humans that we serve, we love and serve and follow a God the one true God who is in his nature downshifting. <laughs> we love and serve a God who has descended to us and continues to do so. Um, and, today's, and today's lectionary passage um, is in the letter of Philippians in the New Testament. And it's, um, this passage is being read all around the world for churches that follow the lectionary. And um, the passage we're going to look at today is the, not the, because there are several in our scriptures, but it is one of the descriptors of God's downshift 
um, to humanity. And don't Google downshifting because what it's become is this like lifestyle brand. <laughs> I Googled it because I hadn't like heard the term in a long time since college. And I Googled it and there's, it, it's fine. Every, it's not a bad thing. It's like this idea that you give up your career and do something more simple so you have more time to rest and all that stuff. And it's great. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the lifestyle brand. I'm talking about what comes from God, the God we love and serve, um, and the God that leads us in the way of, of Jesus um, as God downshifts. So we're going to look at one of the most downshiftiest passages in the Bible. Um, the letter to the Philippians is one of the warmest, most gracious, and nurturing parts of the communication we have from the apostles to the churches. Um, a lot of those letters are kind of feisty because Paul the Apostle's writing and in a very intense time in the early church. And doctrine is, I mean, there were wars fought over these doctrines eventually. And these churches were trying to figure out wherever they were located what it would be like to follow this new king and to follow the way of Jesus. Um, Philippians, the letter to the Philippians isn't so feisty. It's, it's, very, it's very warm, and, it, and it, it indicates that there weren't major, major scandals going on in the church. The church at Philippi was probably a healthy church. Um, there weren't um, doctrinal debates or um, Christology wars happening, like where the Christians would argue about... Um, is Christ more human or more divine, and what to what percentage, and, and what does this mean for our lives? Um, the church at Philippi were noted as being generous and loving and compassionate, and they were um, they were being encouraged in their partnership with the gospel. So it was a healthy. I mean, I don't know if any church congregation <laughs> could be called healthy. We all have, no one's perfect, but it was a healthier congregation for such an early time period of the church. Um, and in particular, one of the messages to the Philippians was about humility. And the downshifting is a, is, is a lot about humility. Um, things that, words I wrote down that are not bad things, but they are things that in the human terms, we, we may surrender or give up to follow a new way. Um, and I noticed that in the O'Brien family, and I'm going to say this on the, on the record. I wrote, I wrote down pride, wealth, resources, positions of power, career, social status, education, in our health and um, at different times in our life, we may have experienced giving up, surrendering some of that towards, towards a new way downward with others. Um, so we're gonna, I'm gonna read, brought my big Bible from Philippians chapter two. Um, 
this is this is generally how the le letter sounds. It's a lot of uh, language that's summed up in this chapter. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any solace in love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion, any mercy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, with the same love, united in heart, thinking, united in heart, thinking one thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or a vain glory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interests, but also everyone looking out for the interests of others. And then we have this big downshifty passage. Oh, I'll go back to that. Here we go. Have among yourselves the same attitude. I might have a different translation here. That is also yours in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind, same thing, be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born into human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now for Christians, this downshift is a very foundational in our faith. This is what we understand um, Christ doing for us, with us, on our behalf. Um, for people outside of our faith, this is a little bit scandalous that God, I'm going to go back to the other slide here, that God would come in right here at the bottom and take the form of the people at the bottom, which is named in this passage, um, taking the form of a, a slave. This is uh, an example of from the first century what these Christians would have heard in this letter. Um, it's how everything was organized in society. And it's very similar to how things are today. And it's very similar to how things are even in other religious cultural contexts like Hinduism. We look at um, the caste system in India and we think, oh, that's so bad. This is like such a bad organization of society. But this is the same. It's the same thing. It's just given different language and it's to different degrees of severity or whether or not you can come out of what you're born into. But people outside the Christian faith, this is just kind of a normal thing. Um, one reason why we do saint studies, and so many of those saints have experienced slavery, is because they have come out of slavery to give us the stories their experience, their perspective about what that is like and why that drew them towards a God who downshifted, who came in at their level, making the gospel accessible, the love of Christ accessible to all people. When Christ comes in at this level, it makes this truth, this gospel accessible. Um, You'll notice here a few things. Um, a couple things I pointed out, or, or I noticed. One is um, my, my friend Esma and I, we talk a lot about religion. She's of the Muslim faith, and she would tell me, um, 
this is pretty much what is unbearable or even offensive to Muslims um, regarding God. God is um, supreme being, high. He's above everything. He is Allah. He is merciful and loving, and he stays in this realm, in the heavenly realm. Um, Esma and I talk a lot about, we celebrate, actually, a lot of similarities in our faiths, and then we also, like, talk about the differences. And this is one of the biggest um, differences, the, the, um, the idea that a holy God, so holy in both religions, our God is holy and other and set apart and above everything, creator. Um, but the idea that that God would come in to humanity as a human, that is what makes her, she'll say it, she's like, I'm just so offended by that. It's just like, ooh, this is so messy and chaotic down here. Let God be God and let us figure this out. Um, but she and I, yeah, it's a big difference. It's a big difference for us. And um, this chapter especially really kind of gets at that. You'll notice here Jesus chooses to relinquish glory. Um, this is a choice Jesus has made. This, these are all actions on this side of, of Jesus, um, being obedient, and Jesus isn't is exalting Jesus to, like, promote Jesus. Jesus is glorifying God. Um, I lost my notes. Here we go. A couple other things I noticed. Um, we do a lot of studying of our minds. We have some brain scholars in the room. We study our minds a lot. We know our numbers and our personality traits and our strengths and our weaknesses. And we, we, like, we like really try and get ourselves. Like we're, we're really good at that, Mountainside. Um, and the encouragement here is to be of the mind of Christ. And I wonder... We don't have a lot of information in the Gospels about the mind of Christ. We have stories and accounts of what Christ did and how he acted and what he said. But we don't know a lot about his mind. So one invitation here is to consider, to just basically consider the mind of Christ. What was his mind like? He emptied, he emptied it, <laughs> which... Sounds pretty good to me <laughs> to like empty, empty yourself of yourself. Um, I also noticed here that taking the form of a slave and then being born into human likeness, it's almost like the writer of this letter names the form of a slave and then he expands it a little bit to, to humanness. Um, kind of implying, I'm guessing, that all of us in one way or another, I mean, obviously we're not here in the room in physical slavery, but many of us can experience in our humanity um, the bondage, whether it's of the mind or the, the body or the soul of, of not being free. And I, I think that this is interesting how there's a being born action into human form and also... Um, Christ kind of like taking this form of a slave. You can think about that for a minute. Um, so anyway, this is the greatest downshift of all times. It is divine to human.
not only to human, to the lowest of the human in the, in the society organization. So yeah, it's a big scandal, but we, we, we go on. Therefore, verse 9, God also highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the sun, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you'll notice in the second part of this little poem or psalm, these are the actions of God the Father. So we have the actions of Christ and then God. It is God who does the work in Jesus. Um, God is the subject here. Christ obeyed and God does the work. It is Jesus who chooses over here. He relinquishes equality with the Father. He empties himself, becomes human, serves and obeys all the way to the cross. But again, God who does the work. And all of the result of this and in the letter and in the gospel and in the whole, in the scriptures, is the glory of God the Father. Jesus' life and ministry is full of bothes. So there's two things happening. There's humiliation and there's exaltation. There's servanthood and there is authority. There's both death and there's life. In and through all of this, the triune God is glorified. Jesus didn't bring God glory by seeking Jesus' glory, by putting Jesus first. Um, but Jesus brought glory by emptying himself. So this is Holy Week. We're, we're coming into Holy Week here. This is the this is the start. It's Palm Sunday. Um, as we go about this week, I wonder if we can all pause in a culture of self-promotion. Um, we're all tempted with it. In a culture of self-preservation, we're all tempted. Um, in a culture of just lot of selfishness. We're all tempted. I wonder if we can pause and consider ourselves wrapped up in the passion story, um, the story of Jesus this week. In those places where God resides with slaves, he becomes an abandoned one. He takes the status with the lowest of people and surrenders to death. I think that the triumphal entry of Jesus, which is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, um, it's when Jesus descended from the Mount of Olives to come into Jerusalem. That's what this is. That's what Palm Sunday is. I think if I'm, if I think I'm reading the Gospels right, I think that was a very awkward moment for Jesus. <laughs> um, because of the way his humility is described and his movement towards death, after he's healed and taught and loved and touched and had a lot of human encounter, 
he gets on this donkey and he starts going down to Jerusalem and all these people are waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, etc. So I think it was probably awkward for Jesus. I don't know, that's my guess. <laughs> I don't claim to know the mind of Christ, but I feel the awkward on Palm Sunday. And maybe it's because I know the end of the story. I think Jesus knew, though, what he was getting into. <laughs> so I think it, the awkward would make sense. Um, and I tried to think of a modern-day comparison to the awkward. And I, um, I, thought of, I thought of this guy. This is Pope Francis. Um, this is not... I'm not comparing this to Jesus, his descent, but I think this story helps us understand, at least in our humanity, what it might be like to, to, to experience this. Um, a couple years ago, I read that Pope Francis would be visiting Palmasola Prison in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Palmasola is one of the, is ranked one of the most dangerous prisons in the world. Police do not operate inside the prison walls, so everything inside the prison is ordered and enforced inside. Um, and it's controlled by the most violent criminals, two gangs who are fighting. They control the weapons, the drugs, the food, and the water. And they control everyone inside the prison. This prison was built for 600 people, but it, today it holds up to 5,000, um, including women and children. So Pope Francis was going to visit Palmasola. So you have this great descent this coming down from Vatican City in Rome to the Southern Hemisphere. Pope Francis visits um, Palmasola Prison in the poorest country in South America. This seems a little bit pretentious. <laughs> um, but I think it, it might seem weird because it's a human attempt at downshifting, about believing and deeply caring for what God cares for. I don't think Pope Francis was wrong to visit this prison. I think if I were the Pope, I would visit this prison. I hope that's what a Pope would do. But it's the way that it's um, done. This image shows the welcome they, he received in Bolivia. Um, it was kind of like the people came out from everywhere. They heard he was coming. It was this beautiful day, and they um, welcomed him, and they were grateful that he was coming. Um, I think Jesus might have felt the same awkward that we <laughs> see in this image. And again, I'm not comparing the Pope to Jesus, <laughs> but of the same faith or of, of the same Lord, um, I just feel that this may have also been an awkward moment for the Pope. Now, look, it looks like he's waving back. He's like saying hello, he's touching babies and making everyone feel, feel good, but I feel the awkward there. Um, The people praise him because he is exalted in power. 
Um, but the Pope probably knows a lot about this prison he's going to enter. And I'm wondering if he maybe just wanted to sit down and cry. The Gospel of Luke says that when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, he wept for the city. And I, I don't know if that's recorded in all the Gospels. I think it's only in Luke, but I think that's an emotional, important piece to this, this idea of descending. So two years before Pope Francis heads to Palmasola, two years before this article came out, um, my cousin's husband, Placido, who is a Bolivian citizen, he was thrown into jail there. Um, he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. So when he was put into Palmasola prison, our extended family was absolutely shaken by this because of all the descriptions we had heard about the place. Um, it was described as a hell on earth. All the rumors were true. He, he said, there were no private cells for inmates, no food or water, and anything to be gained comes from either fighting or paying off one of the people in charge. Um, and soon after he was, well, Placido entered the prison, and he did not believe for a minute that God was with him. He couldn't bring himself to believe that such a crowded hell had any signs anywhere in any corner of God's presence. And to make matters worse, very soon after he entered the prison, he survived one of the worst prison riots in the history of Bolivia. 31 people were dead and 60 were injured and taken to the hospital. Um, the people that survived had to go on lockdown. So this is what lockdown looks like at Palmasoma Prison. The police have to come into the prison, start counting people and um, using their own forms of violence to, to stop the riots from spreading. It was the scariest day of his life, obviously. Um, Placido was terribly shaken and felt death had never been closer. The weight of evil, both spiritual and physical, deprived him of sleep. Everyone was afraid at night, wandering around, at a loss for any hope or sense of God. Placido wanted my uncle, Wes, to come visit him because he needed to know five things from my uncle. He needed to know who is God. Who is Satan? Who are we? What is our purpose? And where is our hope? And then he had a sixth question. <laughs> he said, where the hell are the angels? I read about angels when I was a kid in the Bible, and there are no angels here, and I need an angel. Um, he needed my uncle to, to literally tell him those to answer those questions for him again. That very night, the police came in through another raid, wreaking havoc and violence, making false accusations, extorting, destroying. They went through every single block of the prison, except Placidos, where there were probably 20 men in this block over here. There was an angel there at the gate. And this is a story 
you can only hear from Placido himself. Um, he won't he won't write it down. He won't tell it, and he won't give details because it's too personal to him. Um, but if you ever meet him, he'll tell you. Little by little, Placido set time limits for believing that he could survive in this prison. He started with three days. Like, maybe I'll survive in here three days, like Jonah. Or, okay, three days go by. Maybe seven days. I can do seven days, make it out alive. <laughs> um, anything, and then he got up to 40 days. He's like, got this. I can survive in here for 40 days, 40 more days. Anything symbolic or logical to, to survive the ugliest, messiest, terrifying chaos that was in that prison. Tony, his wife, my cousin, boldly gave him notes from the Gospel of Matthew one day. And finally, finally, he said, he surrendered. He said, enough is enough. I do believe that Jesus has power over evil. I do believe that Jesus can calm a storm. And once he said that, enough is enough with himself, with his own internal fears and external fears and all of that chaos. Once he said that, he felt his heart started to change. Um, his attitude started to change. Not that you have to have a good attitude in prison. That is not a <laughs> requirement. But he said, these are his words. He said, my, my spirits were lifted. And so Placido and Tony, who are both medical doctors, began to start caring for the other prisoners in these walls. They started bringing in some medical supplies and some extra food, and um, they started hearing the stories of the prisoners. And I guarantee you, a huge majority of them were in there that had not been convicted of a crime. Um, they even opened up the scriptures inside Placido's prison block with 10 to 20 men. So his legal ordeal lasted for years, but his time in, at Palmasola lasted only two months. He was eventually released after two months. Um, the Pope visited for one day, two years later. And I think that both Placido and the Pope would probably agree that's God's work to do in there. They are not the Savior. Um, I think they would agree on that. It is God who descends upon all of us. We just don't always get to choose how or in what form this happens, but God descends to those places. This is a scandal. Um, God descends upon us here at Mountainside. God is always descending to us, with us, to comfort us, to give us hope. As a congregation, um, we've been spending the season of Lent 
thinking about the theme of surrender and um, by looking at Jesus' time in the wilderness, his temptations and his resistance to the temptations. <coughs> and as a congregation, the hope is that this week, Holy Week, would mark a movement for us from surrender to trust. Placido could not have trusted God unless he had had those moments of surrender. And he actually had to write those moments of surrender down because he was it was so chaotic and dark and um, traumatic in there that he could not have remembered all of those moments. But there were moments of surrender where he wrote it down. And after that, it became this shift towards trust. And so I think his story shows us kind of that, a shift that can take place. And there's no magic to the church calendar. There's no magic in Holy Week. We all, you know, we sometimes we expect to feel a certain way when we have to go to church on Good Friday and, and consider the death of Christ. And then we rise up again on Easter and it's Resurrection Sunday and we're like, whoa. There's no feelings that are supposed to be felt in all of that. This is the story of God. Feelings are okay. And it's also hard to give yourself expectations <laughs> to how you should feel. Um, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, Jesus had a lot of fans. He also had a lot of haters. Um, there were people that didn't even know who he was at all um, watching his entry to the city. But those who held palms welcomed this king. They took a risk. They trusted that he who was coming was truly a king in a new kingdom. And this is risky in the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire is established, and it looks a lot like what we saw um, on that other slide, with the way so society should be structured according to the people in power, um, the people that waved the palms took a risk. And the risk, we know the outcome of that risk for Jesus. It is humbling to do that, I think, for those people to wave those palms. And it was exciting because they were really attracted to the way of Christ and how he led and loved in his ministry. Our children are going to come in with palms. Um, there's one, counted one. Um, and we as adults this morning are going to welcome these children with their palms, their palm branches. We're going to sing Hosanna again. And Hosanna is a fancy word for praise or adoration or, and joy. And we're singing Hosanna with the rest of the world with Christians all over the world singing Hosanna today because of Christ's descend, because of God's downshifty descent to be with us. So this is a time of joy. Um, and as we welcome these children back with the palms, I want us to think about the times in our lives where we have experienced 
God entering our lives close to us in our moments of joy, in our moments of surrender, in our moments of hope, despair, grief, trauma, anger, you name it. Think of yourself on that pyramid and where God has entered in to our lives um, as we celebrate the coming king. Think of moments where God has drawn so near to you that you might be able to utter Hosanna. Praise him, adoration, joy. And also as we, we praise God with these palm branches, celebrate the downshifting that we're invited into with God. We participate in this. This is action. Um, we all get to downshift in our jobs, in our homes, on our baseball teams, in the hospitals, in our schools. God is there and he has been there. He has gone out before us and we are invited into that downshift with God. It is not our work, it is the work of God in us. And I can think of 10 stories this week with Mountainside Communion, how we can celebrate our participation in downshifting with God, giving ourselves to others, serving others.